Hallelujah. It is all about Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. We serve an awesome, awesome, awesome God. He is glorious. Amen. 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 Glory to his name. If you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse 1 to verse 5. When you got it, say so. And it says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, by which also you are being saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, or of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that is truth. We thank you, Jesus, because it really is all about you, God, and we just humble our hearts in your presence today. And Holy Spirit, I just ask you that you give us ears to hear what you are saying to your church. I pray that you would be glorified, my God. And I know that today, Heavenly Father, as we will go through a lot of material and we will look at a lot of scripture, God, I pray that the heart will not be lost in that, God. But Lord, that we would recognize deeply the power of the gospel, my God. The need that there is for the gospel to be proclaimed and God, that we would just revel in the reality that you have chosen us to share your gospel. You've entrusted your gospel to us, Lord God. Let us be humbled by that, but let us be encouraged by that as well. For your grace is sufficient even in our weaknesses, God. Holy Spirit, we surrender this time to you and we ask you to speak to us and give us the faith to not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. And so really quickly, we have some outlines. If you do not have an outline, it is very important that you get one. So raise your hand if you need an outline and the ushers will get you one. Can we just hold your hand up for a moment? They're, they're coming to you. Glory to God. want to make sure everybody has one because I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures. You'll be able to take a lot of notes and stuff like that, but I want you to be able to follow along. <clears throat> Glory to Jesus. We serve an awesome God. Amen. Amen. Ben, can you turn the lights up in the back there, please? Thank you, sir. And so last week, we covered the bad news. Y'all remember that? I told you, like, toward the middle of the message, you were going to leave depressed. You didn't leave depressed, right? I'm saying you, you, you left encouraged because we talked about a little bit about the good news. So this week we're going to continue on dealing with the gospel. So last week I dealt with the bad news of the gospel. And this week I'm going to talk about the good news. But as we look at this scripture here in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to touch on this because we won't dig into it really deeply. I think I've preached through this, uh, through this um, message or text a few times because it's my favorite um, scripture to go to when we deal with um, Easter Sunday on Resurrection Sunday because this is the, the greatest this chapter 15 is the greatest dealing with the resurrection of Jesus and so how important it is for us so I've read through this before but I just want us to note a couple of things here when the Apostle Paul says moreover brethren I declare to you in the ESV I believe it says I remind you <clears throat> And so he wants us to remember something. He's bringing it to our remembrance. And again, he's talking to the church, and he's communicating to them this gospel. He says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received and in which you stand. And so obviously, when we hear the gospel, we must receive the gospel, receiving the truth of the gospel, saying that that applies to me. So the bad news and the good news, that they both apply to me. <clears throat> and so I'm able to receive that, but then not just receive it, but I also stand in it. Amen? Amen? 
So I stand in this gospel as well. So I receive the gospel. I hear the word of God preached. The people in Corinth, they had received this message that the apostle brought to them. And then they were standing in it. They didn't just hear it and believe it and then live their own lives the way they wanted to. But something was occurring and they were being changed. Can you bring me down a little bit? I feel like I'm like screaming and I'm not even raising my voice yet. Glory to God. We're going to get there. And so... By which also, verse 2, he says, by which also you are being saved. And so salvation is not just a one and done, but it's a continual process. Amen? Amen. It is something that can, and how is it? Now notice what he says. He's reminding them of the gospel because what? It is by the gospel that we are saved and that we are being saved. Amen? And so he's, he's letting them know, you don't like come to Jesus and then you come through the gospel door and then you go to some other place. No, you stay in the gospel. You stand in the gospel. You grow in the revelation of who Jesus is. He goes on through, or you grow through the revelation of who Jesus is by us understanding the deeper revelation and truth of the gospel. In the next series that I'm going to do, we're going to be going through the book of Ephesians. And so we're really going to dig deep, especially the first three chapters, as far as what the gospel really is. And you're really, I mean, I hope by the time we're done, with the first three chapters that you are overwhelmed with the good news amen because it is some great news that we see throughout Ephesians but he says in this you are being saved if you say if you hold fast don't say that if you hold fast that word which I preached to you and so again that goes with the receiving part unless you believed in vain and so we don't want to believe in vain and say yeah I believe that but I believe like the demons the Bible says that demons believe and tremble but guess where they're going to spend eternity so it's not, it's, it's not enough just to say, I believe that. I mentally assent to that. Yes, I agree and amen to that. But I have to believe it. I have to stand in it. I have to hold fast to that word that is there. He says, for I delivered to you, of, first of all, in the New King James Version, um, and it says of first important in the ESV. And so it's showing us in the Greek, that's really what it's saying, of first importance. The thing that is of first importance is that, and I said this last week, that we can get a lot of things wrong, but we cannot get the gospel wrong. Amen. And so we can get a bunch of stuff wrong in our lives, but we do not want to get the gospel wrong. And so he says this. He says, for first of all, I delivered to you that which I also received. So first of all, before Christ gave it, he did, I mean, before Paul gave it, he received it. So it was for him first. And then he tells us what he received, that Christ died. And notice this. He doesn't stutter in the writing and like just say Christ died and kind of like mumble, right, like of our sins. Right? It's like the same writing there. He says, and Christ died for our sins. There's a reason. Remember, we talked about the bad news last week. And so Jesus didn't just die for no reason. It is so very important that we understand why Jesus died. Now we realize that he didn't just die because then you know what we'll do? We'll look at Jesus and we'll be like, man, he suffered a lot. But why did he suffer? He suffered for our sins. Say our sins. So our sins, our, all of our sins, he died for our sins. All, he died for all of those sins that we have committed against him. He died for our sins according to the scriptures because the scriptures prophesied these things. And verse 4, and that he was buried. So he died. He died for real. He was dead. He was buried, laid in a tomb, and that, and that he rose again. And so the resurrection, the third day, according to the scriptures, that also prophesied his resurrection, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And so we'll stop there. And so looking at your outline, we can, you can follow along with me. Last week, we covered the bad news of the gospel. So we should understand biblically that the bad news is really say really bad news the bad news is supposed to be bad news remember I said before I gave you the good news the beauty of the bad news I said to you just sit in that for a moment feel the desperation feel the inability to do anything we can do nothing outside of and apart from Jesus that is bad news and so why is it bad news it is because all men have a sin problem we learned that last week all men have a death problem meaning spiritual physical and eternal death and we and we recognize this that death is God's judgment against sin and we realize that all men also have a good works problem why because good works don't work when it comes to trying to experience or receive God's saving grace so it's bad news for us. And so today we will deal with the second half of the full gospel presentation, the good news. And so this may sound like an oxymoron since gospel in and of itself means what? 
Good news. Good news. So it's like, well, wait a second. Is there bad news in the good news? Yes. Why? I don't know. That's just the way that it is. But the truth is, he says it here. Christ died. That sounds, you know, bad. I mean, you know, we talk about Good Friday. It was good for us, not so much for Jesus. Just saying. You know, he was suffering. And so, you know, when you think about those things, it sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not an oxymoron. Why? Because in order for us to receive the gospel, we have to receive the bad news about ourselves and the good news about Jesus. I was talking to Pastor Aldo, and we were discussing the, the gospel. And he was saying, man, you know, we got to get is that Jesus is the good news, and that's it. Are you here? Jesus is the good news. No one else is the good news. I'm not the good news, you know. I mean, I, I know you're cute, and you look cute, glory to God, right? I'm just saying, I mean, you look cute. But you're not the good news either. Jesus is the good news. Now, let me say this. I want to bring some balance to this. You are the good news if you're saved. You know why? Because Jesus delivered you, and you can bring that good news to someone's life. You have been set free. You have experienced all the stuff we're going to talk about. But who are you pointing to? Are you pointing to you, or are you pointing to Jesus? See, because the reality is it's all about him. That's what we just saying, right? It's all about Jesus. It's all about his glory. And so what we realize is that when we look at the, the, um, the, the word gospel, it means good tidings. Um, euangelion is the word in the Greek there. And that word literally means good tidings or good news. And so we have to believe both, the bad news and the good news. And so the good news, and listen to this, and I don't know if I wrote that down in your outline here, but you can write it down if I didn't. But the good news, I think I did, it is the very simple and magnificent story of what God in his love has done for us that we might know him and belong to him forever. This is what the good news is in a nutshell. And I want you to know we're going to unpack that nut today. Hello. I mean, if you look at your outline, it was like that was one sentence. You got like two pages ready for us to look at scripture upon scripture. Because remember what I told you last week. The reason why I am going through this in detail and I am trying to, you know, dot every T and I mean dot dot every I, cross every T, is because I want to make sure that I'm doing my job in equipping you with what you need in order to do what? To be able to share the gospel with those whom you know who do not know Jesus. I want you to be able to have a reference for you to go back and say, man, I know how to explain the bad news clearly. I know how to show the things that the scriptures teach. And I also want you to be able to have a plethora of scripture to be able to communicate the good news of Jesus. Amen? And so we'll look at a lot of stuff together today. And so the first thing I told you this last week, I want to repeat this, is what is the full gospel? I asked you all to write down what your definition of the gospel was. I didn't take them. I didn't have you guys compare notes or anything like that. But if I were to give you my definition of the full gospel, which is the title of this series or the, these two, this two-part message here, it is that God revealed, remember the book of Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning, God. And so God reveals himself. Man sins and brings death. And then Jesus, Savior, God the Son, lived perfectly, crucified unjustly, resurrected miraculously, and then new life, justification, sanctification, and glorification by grace. And so if, if I were to say that again, that, that if someone asked me what's the gospel, that would be the definition I would give them of what the gospel is in its totality. And so the first thing is this, say this after me, the good news is all about Jesus and his finished work. The good news is all about Jesus and his finished work. And so the first thing we're going to look at is who God is, right? This is very important for us because to know God is the highest level of life. And I'm quoting the book that I told you all about last week, Whatever Happened to the Gospel. And he writes this, and I think that this is very important for us to get. Knowing God is the highest level of life any of us can attain because everything meaningful, satisfying, and productive in our lives flows from the working knowledge we have of who God is and what he has done for us. Book of Jeremiah chapter 9, it tells us, it says that he who glories, let him glory in what? That he knows me. This is God speaking. He says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Let not the, the mighty man glory in his might. But he who glories, let him glory in this. That he knows and understands me that I am the Lord, right? And I execute righteousness and justice and loving kindness in the earth. And these things I delight. That's what he communicates to us. And so the thing that we should glory in is what? Is in knowing who our God is. And so we'll look at a couple of scriptures because I want you to realize some things because God reveals himself in a way. And so you guys are ready with those scriptures back there? Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. You ready for that one? Getting it? There we go. So look at this. I want you to see this. 
Then God said, let us, say let us. Make man in our image, say our image. According to our likeness, say our likeness. Let them have dominion over the, earth, over, the, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So notice, he says, let us in our image and our likeness. And so what does that tell me? That is plural, right? And so God reveals himself in the Old Testament. There's, a, there's this plural word. He didn't say, let me create. He says, let us create. And I want you to know that there wasn't like a bunch of gods. It's not like when you look at Greek mythology and you know how you see the pictures, like when you see whatever, Perry, whatever, that, what's that movie called? Perry Jackson or whatever. And, you know, you see like the tribune. Percy Jackson, Perry, I'm my bad. Percy Jackson, glory to God, my bad. So Percy, I'm glad y'all watching Percy Jackson. I'm just kidding. So, so anyway, that was a test, but no, I'm, just, I'm joking. I watched it too. So anyhow, um, the, the, you know, the, 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 it's not like that tribunal, right, where there's like this God over here, that God over there. It's not like that. That's not this. That's, that's not our God, right? That's pluralism. We don't believe in that, right? So we believe in one God, right? We believe in, we believe in one God, but we believe that God is a plurality and a unity, that's called the Trinity, right? I don't like to use the word Trinity because, you know, if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, they're going to be like, well, that, that word's not in the Bible. They're correct. It's not in the Bible. But it says this here. Hello. It says, let us make. And so you look forward. Isaiah, you know, um, Isaiah chapter 6. And I, I didn't give you all that scripture. But Isaiah chapter 6, I gave you some scriptures there because God reveals himself, Old Testament to New Testament. He shows himself as this one God, three persons. Those three persons are who? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so I, I just, I want you to understand that I don't plan to get real deep into the whole um, doctrine of the Trinity today. But in order for us to understand God, we have to understand that he is way beyond our pay grade of understanding. Hello. I'm just saying, like, when we really think about it, I mean, God is way, like, we can't bring him down to our level. Like, you know, one of the greatest examples, I think, or the closest, I would say, when you try to, you know, figure out the Trinity is like when you look at water, right? Because water can be liquid, it can be gas, and it can be ice. But the problem is, I don't know if it can be all three at the same time, that same water. Right? That's the only issue. But so what the, the point is, is that what we see here is that God reveals himself this way. And then when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, so the Old Testament shows us this. And then in, in Paul's benediction in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. There we go. It says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, and the love of God, speaking of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Amen. And so God reveals himself as this triune God from the beginning and all the way throughout Scripture. He shows himself to be this way. And so why is this important for us? Because if we're going to understand who God is, right, that, that's important for us to glory in that. But also that we understand who Jesus is. Because when we look at Jesus and who he is, the correct understanding of who Jesus is is the foundation to the correct understanding of the gospel. Are you here? If you don't understand who Jesus is, if you have a wrong definition of who Jesus is, you will have a wrong definition of the gospel. Let me, share, let me share this with you. Jesus is not the son of God. What I mean by that is he is not just the son of God. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that he is the son of God, but he is not God the son. There's a difference, okay, because it sounds like they're saying the same thing. Well, yeah, he's the son of God, but no, but that's like a lower S, a lowercase s. Not the son of God, like the begotten of God. There's a difference. And so Jesus is not just the son of God. Jesus is not Satan's brother. Hello? Are you hearing me? Because that, 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 that's what Mormons believe, right? He's Satan's brother. He's the good one. That's what they believe. I looked it up on their website, and I looked at their refuting of it, and they couldn't even refute it. They had to explain it. I was like, this is amazing. They're trying to refute it, and they're still admitting it. Right? I'm saying, so it's not Satan's brother. Jesus is not just an angel. Hello? Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is God the Son come in the flesh as Savior of the world, fully God and fully man at the same time. That is who Jesus is. And so we, we understand that about God. And so the good news, uh, say this with me, the good news rests upon the deity and humanity of Jesus. The good news rests upon the deity and the humanity of Jesus. And so Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 is a prophecy that happened 700 years. Say 700 years. 
prior to Jesus coming onto the scene. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you could do this? How many of you could write down on a piece of paper what is going to happen in seven days? How about seven minutes? How about seven seconds? None of us can do that, but look at what God does. God speaks 700 years prior to. You guys got that scripture ready? Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Look what it says. It says, for unto us a child, say child, is born. Unto us a son, say son, is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. What is this? Mighty God. What is this? Everlasting Father, okay, and Prince of Peace. And so what we realize is we see, for unto us a child is born. And so that speaks of Jesus' humanity. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son. That speaks to his divinity is given. And so if there's any question as to who this one is going to be, this cannot be speaking about a temporal man in the earth. This has to be speaking about who? Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And so we realize that the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus' birth, prophesies that. And then you have those other scriptures there. I, I, we're not going to turn there. But Luke 2.11, John 3.16, and those scriptures that could, well, Luke 2.11 speaks clearly about the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then John 3.16 speaks about, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And speaking of those things, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then John chapter 1 and verse 14, it tells us, and the word and who is the word? The word is God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we realize who Jesus is, right? We're getting the picture, hopefully, and we understand clearly that Jesus is God. And so when we look at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are all co-eternal, co-equal. So they have the same authority. Amen? So this is who our Jesus is. And so the scripture also speaks about something that is extremely important. Not just that, that Jesus came from God, but the virgin birth is important because of this. Now listen to me. Only a sinless sacrifice can substitute for sinful man. If Jesus is not sinless at birth, he has a sin problem just like the rest of us. And so all of these things are important when you're talking to someone. Now, mind you, when you're talking to someone, you're probably not going to have all of this in-depth conversation. But you know what? You may just meet someone who has all of these questions for you. And my hope is that you'll be able to answer them. And so Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. You guys got that one? Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. It says here, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us, right? Christmas story, right? So God with us. And so we realize that this story is confirmed in the New Testament. Again, you have the scripture there, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 23. Two, it shows us the prophecy fulfilled regarding the virgin birth. Now, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. I want you to see this because this is important. Not only was Jesus sinless, right, in his, that's the next verse, the verse before that. Hebrews, there you go. He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. What is our weakness, y'all? Our flesh, our weakness, right? Jesus was hungry just like we were hungry. He experienced temptation the same way that we experience temptation. And so Jesus, he says this, does not sympathize with our weakness but was in all points. Say all points. That means he was tempted in every way, right? He was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Say without sin. And so Jesus is born sinless because of what because we know that we inherit what we inherit our sin from our fathers remember we talked about it last week everybody in here admitted that they have an earthly father made us all sinful equally right we're all born into sin the same way and so jesus does not he would have not raised his hand if he was sitting in this room he wouldn't have said yep i have an earthly father because he didn't he had an earthly stepdad in joseph but he'd have an earthly biological father and so we realize that this scripture shows us that jesus lived sinlessly in this earth and then matthew 20 and verse 28 that's the next verse there and this shows us the purpose of him coming. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so Jesus is God. He is born of a virgin. He is living a sinless life. And the purpose of that is because in order for us to be saved, someone has to pay the ransom price for our salvation. For our sin debt that we accrue by birth and by our decisions. And so this is who our Savior is. The next thing I ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, the good news reveals 
what Jesus accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. The good news reveals what Jesus accomplished through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And let me say this now, and I'll say it again later. The life of Jesus deals with our good works problem. Because since our good works are like filthy rags before him, his good works make up for all of ours. Hello. His good works, and listen, and when I say make up, I don't want you to think like, well, you got like 30% right, and he does the 60%. No. You got 100% wrong, and he does 100% right. Now listen, when I say 100% wrong, I don't mean that you don't have good intentions in some things. I don't mean that you don't do some good stuff. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags before him, that is giving us a zero on the test. I'm just saying that that's what happens. But Jesus comes and he gives us a 100 because of himself. And so I don't depend on my good works. I depend on whose good works? His good works. And so we see that Jesus, his life shows us this. And so the death of Jesus, say the death of Jesus, death of Jesus. Dealt, with dealt with man's sin problem. And so I told you man had three problems, right? They had a good works problem, and so Jesus' life deals with that. I told you man has a sin problem, and so the good news is that man is not stuck in his sin problem because of what? Because Jesus' death deals with our sin problem. Jesus became something called a substitute. Say a substitute. And so when we think about a substitute, right, if you think about a sport, I like the analogy that David Nicholas gives in his book. He uses the analogy, he said, when he was in high school or something like that, he played basketball. And he said, I used to play basketball. And he said, I was really horrible, so, like, the coach let me go in, like, once in a while as a substitute, right? And so usually, you know, you watch NBA basketball, and when a team is getting whooped really bad, who do they put in? They put in the subs, man, or the scrubs. I'm just saying, that's, that's there, that's... I'm just, that, 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 that's how they look at it, right? These are the people that, they're the subs. They're not first strings. They put those guys in there so that way they can. But this is the beauty of our substitute. Our substitute is much better than us. Our substitute is not the one sitting on the bench. He's the best player on the team, and he's coming in for us. He doesn't just come in for us, but this is the beauty of this substitution that Jesus makes. He comes in for us at the worst part of the game to play the hardest part of the game. As a matter of fact, to play the part of the game that we will lose at if we try to do it on our own. He comes in to do what? To pay the price that we could never price pay so that way we can have the victory that only he can give. He does it because he sees that we can't, and so he comes to this earth, and he, and he comes in our place. And so this picture of substitution is one that we see, again, throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, God sets up this, 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 this analogy in who? In Abraham and Isaac. Remember? Abraham is walking Isaac up the mountain with his dad. He's got the wood. He's got the fire. And, and Isaac looks up at dad, and he's like, yo, dad, I see the wood. I see the fire. I see the rope. Where's the sacrifice? Like, I would have been asking the same question. Like, are we going to find this? Like, where's the bow to kill this sacrifice? When they get up there, you know the, script, you know the story. The story is very simple. God is up there with them, obviously. And Abraham is getting ready to kill his son. And right when he's getting ready to do it, God stops him and says, don't put your hand on him. When Abraham looks back, what does he find? He finds a ram caught in the thicket. Hello. We, hear, we, we know the name Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And what did he do? He gives us the principle of substitution. When you fast forward and you look at the Passover, which is something that is extremely important for us to realize, is that Jesus is our Passover. And so the way that the Passover came about was because in Egypt there was these ten plagues, and the tenth plague was what? It was the death of the firstborn. And so what God says to the children of Israel is, I'm not going to kill you. And it's amazing because if you look at all the first nine plagues, they didn't have to kill anything. Are you hearing me? They didn't have to kill anything in order for them not to experience it. It wasn't until the death part of the plague that happened that all of a sudden God says, now, I want you to kill a lamb and put the blood over your doorpost. And when the angel comes by, this angel of death passes by and he sees that, he'll pass over your home. Showing them what? This principle of substitution. <clears throat> you fast forward and you look at the whole um, covenant of Israel and the sacrifice they made daily. Continually, they were offering sacrifices as what? As substitutes for their sin. As substitutes for them. And so God was establishing something and that we could understand that Jesus is our substitute. So Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11.
Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. I might be a little small for you, but I'm going to read it to you, okay? <clears throat> for those of you that don't have your glasses on or don't want to wear them, amen. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, this is what Pastor Chad was communicating, right? And that word sinners, I just want you to understand, still God's enemies, right? Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath, from wrath through him. What wrath is that? Remember that death, that death problem, the eternal death, that wrath. We'll be saved from that wrath. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Amen. And so what we see here in that scripture is that Jesus took our place on the cross to suffer for our sins and to deliver us from the wrath of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. This one tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of him who died for us. This scripture is known as the great exchange that happens. This shows us clearly what happened on the cross. What happens is God really, hear me now, really takes our place in the form of his son. He takes for us the beating we deserve. He takes for us the wrath we deserve. He takes for us the punishment we deserve. He takes for us the suffering that we deserve, and he gives us what? Righteousness. He gives us righteousness. He calls us righteous. He calls us that because of what? Because of what Jesus does. Because his righteousness is imputed to us. Matthew 26, verse 39. And it says, He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And did you guys get Luke also? You have Luke? Yes? Here we go. Luke twenty-two forty-one. 41. Now, this is two different accounts of Jesus' prayer. But I want you to see what Jesus prayed. First of all, he prayed something specifically in Matthew, right? That we just saw there. He prayed what? He said, remove this cup from me. That's what he said. Amen? That's what he said. He said, Father, if you can remove this cup, right? He asked him about that cup. And he says this in this, this passage here. He says, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Again, he prays this, he prays this here from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It says, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, say in agony. He prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so why, is this, why, why, why do I bring this scripture in here? It is because I want you to see the anguish that Jesus was in over what he was about to do. You see, Jesus, I want you to get this. What he was asking God to do, he is asking him to remove this cup. He didn't say remove this cross. He said, remove this cup. And so why was Jesus in such anguish of soul? He was in anguish of soul because he was feeling the weight of our sin on him prior to him going to the cross. He was experiencing the anguish that God the Father feels when it comes to sin. And he was, he was, he was pre, I, I'm saying this, I think. I mean, I imagine that this part I can't, I can't guarantee you. But what I know is this, is that Jesus had never, this part I know for sure, had never been separated from the Father, ever. He was always in communion and relationship. And what he knew is at some point there was going to have to be that part where, where, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reason is because of our sin that is on him. And Jesus is experiencing this anguish of soul because of our sins. And then 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, it shows us some good stuff as well. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And the next one, John, 1 John 4.10. <clears throat> And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so what does this show us? This shows us that, Je this shows us that Jesus is the means of our forgiveness. 
It is by Jesus, not my good works, not anything that I do. It is by Jesus' forgiveness. It is because Jesus becomes literally our mercy seat. In the old covenant, what happens is in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, it talks about this mercy seat. And it's talking about Jesus being that. But in the Old Testament, what happens? What happens is they sacrifice this animal and then they sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. So that way the blood of the animal stands between the sinner over here, and the sacred writings of God inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. And so what happens is the, the law accuses us of being sinful and, and, and rebellious towards God. But what Jesus did, does is he sheds his blood so that way his blood offers us mercy. His blood offers us mercy so that way we can have this right standing with God. And John chapter 8 and verse 31 to 36 this gives us a real good picture of what Jesus came to do. Again, this is a little bit small, but, but look what it says. It says, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word and you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Now just hold on a second because what they're saying is, Jesus, we don't need that freedom. We, we, we're free. We, we, we just want a little blessing from you. Hello. That's all they wanted from him. They were like, because they, they, he's, he's talking to these people like they're following him and they're listening to what he's saying. And he goes on to say, Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin. See, they didn't think they had ever been in bondage to anything. They had never been slaves of anything. And mind you, they're slaves in Rome at the time. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But in the, in the sin sense, right, he says, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. So the son who's abiding forever, who is who? Jesus. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so it shows us what Jesus came to do. His death deals with our sin problem, and it lets us know clearly that Jesus came to set us free from the slavery of sin. That is awesome. The book of Romans says that we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves of righteousness. And so when God saves us and he delivers us, he deals with our sin problem completely. Say completely. On the cross, he deals with our sins 100%. The second thing I ask you to repeat after me is this. Say, the resurrection of Jesus dealt with man's death problem. And so the death of Jesus deals specifically with man's sin problem. The resurrection of Jesus deals with man's death problem. And so Acts chapter 2, verse 24. It says this. It says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So what does this tell us? This is talking about our amazing Savior. He suffered in our place unjustly. He was crucified in a ruthless manner, and he was buried in the tomb for real dead. He wasn't down there knocked out. Hello. That's another thing you can't believe. Don't believe that Jesus was just resuscitated when the cool breeze blew through. I'm just saying. Like Jesus, like Jesus was taking a nap on the cross, right? I'm seriously. No, he was not taking a nap on the cross. He didn't just pass out from anguish. It wasn't like that. Remember, they shoved the spear in his side. Blood and water came out, proving that he was dead. And so he's dead. He is in the tomb. And the Bible says what? That death could not hold him down. Now, this should be exciting for us because what, why is this such a, what, such a big deal? It shows us that death had no power over Jesus because death has no power where there is no sin. Did you hear me? See, Jesus became sin for us on the cross, but once he paid the price on the cross, he remains sinful on the cross. He satisfied the sin debt that we had, but he is sinless in the tomb. And so what? He can't be held down. He cannot be held down because he is not a sinner. He is not in need of a Savior. He is the Savior, and so he rises up. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't have the scriptures here for you right now, but if you read the New Testament, there's something beautiful. The Bible says that God the Father raised Jesus up. Jesus said he would raise himself up, and the scripture says that the Holy Spirit raised him up. You know what that shows us? It shows us the Trinity in action in the resurrection. Hallelujah. And so it shows us God is active in all of that. John chapter 17 and verse 3. It says this, it says, and this is eternal life. Say eternal life. Y'all want to know what eternal life is, right? 
right? We want eternal life. And so Jesus is praying, and he gives us the right definition. He says that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so eternal life, it shows us it is not just about living forever. Hear me when I say this. Everyone is going to live forever. The question is, who do they know? What will you know forever? Will you know the eternal, loving, gracious, holy, righteous God? Or will you know nothing but suffering? Will you know nothing but his wrath? Everyone's going to live forever. But eternal life begins not tomorrow, not after we take our last breath. It is the moment that we accept him as God and we accept him as Savior, that we accept him as Lord. The moment we receive that gospel, eternal life begins. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. It says this. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Someone say amen. Because what happens is, is that the same power of resurrection that raised Jesus from the grave is also empowering us to do what? To live righteous lives. Empowering us to live holy lives. Empowering us to live for the glory and honor of Jesus. This is what the good news is, church, is that he died to deal with our death problem. And he came and that way we would not experience this death in, in, in our natural bodies, giving in to sin, but that we would be able to do what? Overcome sin by the power of what? The Spirit who dwells in us, who raised Jesus from the dead. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 14 it says, knowing that he who raised up, wait, is that that description? Is it? Yes. No? That is the scripture. Okay. I just read that scripture, didn't I? No, I didn't. Okay. All right. It's just they all look so amazing. Um, <laughs> knowing, knowing that he who raised up the Lord, Jesus, will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. And so look at that. The, the beauty of this scripture here is that it shows us the promise of eternal life. So the scripture prior to this is about us being what? Giving life to our mortal bodies now. And this one shows us that we will be raised with Christ when? This is looking to the future. Hello. There's a future, there's a glorification that is going to take place. And then 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. And it says this. It says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner. This is Paul speaking to his son Timothy. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished, say abolished, death and brought life, say brought life and immortality, say immortality. To light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Verse 10 tells us very clearly that Jesus did what? He abolished death. And gave us life. The good news is that Jesus' sacrifice addressed our sin issues once for all. According to these scriptures and according to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10, he was a sacrifice once for all, sanctifying us. And the resurrection addressed our death problem. And Jesus' sinless life addressed our good works problem. So here's what happens, church. When you and I respond in faith and repentance to the gospel, we are born again or we are given a new life. To be born again means I get a new life, right? I get a new heart, get a new mind, and I still struggle with things in my life. But here's the thing. I get a new life. My, my, my members are empowered by what? The resurrection of Jesus. The, the, I was once dead in my trespasses, and now I am brought to life. Amen? 
And so we have this hope in Christ Jesus. And so what does this mean, this new life? Well, let's look at this together. Acts chapter 13, verse 38 to 39. It says this. It says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, who is that man? Jesus is always the right answer in church. Okay, so (laughs) that through this man, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. I love that. So the first thing that we see is that because of Jesus, through Jesus, we preach the forgiveness of sins, which means what? It means that I received justification. Another translation says freed or freedom. And so what happens in a judicial setting before for God, because of the bad news, I am guilty as a sinner, and as such, I must suffer death. But the Bible says that because of Jesus, my faith in him, and what happens is he offers me this forgiveness and this beautiful word called justification. And so what justification does is it doesn't just say I am not guilty. It says I'm not the same person before God anymore. Are you hearing me? Because it's one thing for me to forgive someone and remember what they did all the time. Are you hearing me? See, that, that, see, see, that's not justification, right? That's that forgiveness that we give as human beings where, you know what, I forgive you, but I got you. I forgive you, but I see you, right? I'm going I'm to keep you at arm's, arm's distance if that, but I'm, I'm not letting you do it again to me, right? Okay, so the beauty of our God is he doesn't do that. He says, you're not guilty, and he says, and I don't hold it against you. I don't want to remind you of those things. doesn't want to do that. I take your sins and do what? I cast them as far as the east is from the west. Do you know how far that is? I'm just saying that's pretty far because the east never meets the west. They never meet. And so that's what he says he does. And so the beauty is the first thing is that through Jesus Christ, I can say I am justified. I'm forgiven, and that's it. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't remember me by that name anymore. Other people might, but he doesn't. Amen? The next one, 2 Thessalonians 13 through 14. It says to us, it says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And notice, hold on a second, sanctification is by what? The Spirit and belief in the truth. The truth is what? It is God's word to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus. And so the second thing that we see here, the first one is that when we come to to Jesus by faith, we repent of sin, we are justified, right? We are made right before God. We are given a right standing before him. Our righteousness is not our own, but it is his. But then something else happens that I am being, say I am being, I am being sanctified. God's word and God's spirit are at work in me, making me more like Jesus, empowering me to be a clear image bearer of the God who saved me. We talked about this before when I was dealing with our identity in Christ. We have been given this imago Dei. All of us are born with the image of God. And so with this, it is marred by sin. And when we come to Christ Jesus, we are liberated to do what? To be those image bearers. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 to 18, it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as... Okay, chapter 5, all right, I'm sorry. I was just excited I was going to read it anyway, chapter 8. Is that cha- was that chapter 5? I'm sorry. Well, I don't, I don't control that, but I apologize anyway. But I was excited about that, as you can see. I was like, okay, we're going to talk about justification again. Glory to God, there we go. Is that chapter 5? That's chapter 5. Romans 8, 16 to 18. We're close, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. It's all right. See, it's so easy when you just flip the pages in the Bible, right? You just get there right quick, Amen. Romans 8, 16 to 18. There we go. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earning, no, no, we're done, we're done, amen. No, did I say, no, I didn't say, no, I said 18. 18 was that, all right, we're good, amen. I'll keep reading if you want. I'm just saying, we keep going through the Bible. It's no problem for me. But not only am I justified by God, not only am I being sanctified by God, but he promises that I'm a son, I'm a child of God, and I have an inheritance. Now, let me ask you this. Do, who, who, do you get an inheritance now, or is it an inheritance for later? It's for later. It's not for now. You don't get it now. You get it later on. And so what he's doing is he's giving a, a, us a future promise of something called glorification. And so I'm justified by grace. I'm, sanct- I'm being sanctified by grace. And I will be glorified by grace, eternally rejoicing with and in God my Savior. And so here's, here, here's, here's my closing question. It's my closing question. Do you believe the full gospel? Do you believe the bad news about yourself and the good news about Jesus? I'll close with this last scripture. And I didn't give him this one. I want you guys to turn there. Romans chapter 5. We're going to get there. Romans 5, when I read this, it was like, this is the good news, hallelujah. I think we read this already, but we're just going to read it again because it's an amazing verse. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 to 21. It says this. It says, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So my question is, do you believe the bad news about yourself? Do you believe the good news about Jesus? They're both equally important. Because if I don't believe the bad news about myself, I don't need the good news about Jesus. And I thought about it like this. If I came to you and I said to you, hey, man, I have some bad news and I have some good news. Most of you, and I said, which one do you want to hear first? Most of you would say, give me the bad news first. Because the hope is the good news will be so good, it will take the sting off. Right? Like no matter what the bad news is, the beauty of the gospel is that the good news is so glorious and so amazing it's always better news. But if you, if, if you believe that today and Jesus is not Lord of your life, you can make him Lord of your life. Well, he can make you his child. How about we say it like that? That's better. He will make you his child today. But you have to take a step of faith. You have to say, God, I recognize that I need you. You have to confess your sin. You have to trust him with all of your life and ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And if you're in this place, I hope, and you, don't, and you do know him, I hope that you're encouraged and I hope that you're empowered and I hope that you are doubly happy as you were last week by the reminder of the good news of Jesus. Amen? Let's all stand to our feet and bow our heads and let's pray together. I'm going to invite the music ministry to come up because I want us to close. I'm going to pray this general prayer. We're going to sing a song to to close out this this message. But as I said, if you're in this place and Jesus is not Lord, Jesus is not Savior, Jesus is not the God of your life, today he calls you to turn from your sin and turn to your Savior. Today he calls you to put your faith in him. And you may have thought you were walking with him and you realized that you haven't been. But today he wants to set you free. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. I just humble myself.